Uh, if you have your Bibles, it's First Peter chapter one. Uh, First Peter, no, sorry, First Peter chapter two. Yeah, moving along swiftly. First Peter chapter two, and I'm actually I am going to read from chapter one, verse twenty-two that Pete preached from last week, not because I'm going to re-preach his passage, but because we're just going to set it in the context. So if you'd like to follow along with me, we're going to read and then we'll pray and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord has for us. This is uh, his word to us from the Apostle Peter, verse 22, chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... For a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For, and he quotes Isaiah 40, I think it is, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths that it contains, and the challenges that it contains, and the grace that it contains. We pray that we would encounter you as we read. And that you would change us to be the people that you want us to be. So that we might live as elect exiles in a world that doesn't follow Jesus for the glory of Jesus' name. Loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. So help us to understand this morning. Help us to put aside all the distractions, all of the worries that that can cloud us because of the week that we've had. And help us to focus on your word and hear your voice, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Excuse me. Here's a Daily Telegraph article that I read recently and I thought it was interesting just as I was thinking about this passage. It says this, people in Britain are desperate to be thin, which is probably why you can see why I was interested in it, because that would be me. People in Britain are, interested, are desperate to be thin. We starve ourselves. We spend a fortune on gym memberships. We collectively embark on the latest diet craze in an effort to imitate those waif-like images that illustrate magazine covers. But despite our best efforts, we're more sedentary, whatever that means, I guess that means we don't move, than ever before. And both men and women, we keep getting fatter. Books, recipes, health food, support groups that promise to help customers shed the pounds, flood the market, but our waistlines continue to grow. According to a market research company, most people in Britain tried to lose weight last year. The diet industry in the UK is worth an estimated £2 billion 
and Mintel, this research company, reports that a further £1.2 billion is spent on diet food last year. Our devotion to weight loss shows that we're buying into the diet concept, but we're not eating more healthily. Despite buying health products and low-food fats, low-fat foods, low-food fats, <laughs> that's my problem, uh, low-fat foods, we're eating fewer and fewer vegetables and fruit. In fact, purchases of fruit and vegetables were 11% lower this year than five years ago. Siri Stimo, a health psychology practitioner and personal trainer who designs personal anti-diet weight management courses, who knew that that was a job, <clears throat> says our obsessive focus on being thin has displaced any focus on health. <coughs> our need to be thin pushes many towards strict diet regimes which damage our relationships with food and end up making the obesity crisis we face in our country not better, but worse. After all, it's common knowledge that those who generally maintain a normal weight throughout their lives are rarely the same people who follow extreme diets, but people who just seem to follow a naturally healthy diet. If you spend your entire life dieting and binging, you fall into the eat, repent, and repeat cycle. You don't eat any carbs all week, and then at the weekend you have a what-the-hell effect, and you end up repenting of your bad eating habits and hating yourself throughout the entire cycle. In the short run, he says, dieting will make you lose weight. And you can choose Atkins, calorie counting, Weight Watchers, cutting out the carbs, the maple syrup diet, juicing, whatever they are. But eventually, under all of those diets, because they're not sustainable long term, the majority of people will put back on that weight within five years and have no overall effect. You should never start a diet, he says, that you shouldn't be able to sustain for the rest of your life. So, what's the solution? Focus on your health rather than your thinness. Focus on your health rather than on your thinness. Focus on what you eat, making sure that it's healthy. Eat your fruit and vegetables. Cut out the bad stuff. Crave the good stuff. And the writer of this Daily Telegraph article says for the modern world what the Apostle Peter says for the Christian, but in spiritual terms. So that's how they're linked this morning. I wasn't just thought I'd share that interesting, you know, make us all feel guilty <clears throat> that we cut out the carbs during the week and then, you know, what the heck throughout the weekend. No, what we need to focus on, Peter tells us, is our health. The nutrition that we put into our bodies. If we want to be healthy Christians, we've got to cut out the bad stuff and eat the right kind of spiritual food. And that's what he's going to tell us today in our three verses in chapter 2. If you remember last week, Pete led us through a wonderful step-by-step, uh, -step, uh, four questions through the passage of verses 22 to 25, where he was telling us that God's word has been preached to us. We've become born again. We've been made alive. And now the new life that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be marked by a sincere and authentic and a deep brotherly love for one another. 
as his people. And now he's going to tell us something else that should mark our Christian lives. That we should be marked by a growing healthiness. A growing healthiness unto maturity. So I called this message Grow Up. That's what it's called. That's what he's got. He's got three healthy eating tips for us this morning to help us to grow up into Christ, into healthy Christian living. Cut out the bad stuff, crave the good stuff, and then cultivate a healthy appetite for more. That's what he's going to tell us this morning. Cut out the bad stuff, crave the good stuff, cultivate a healthy appetite for more. So let's begin with that first one. Cut out the bad stuff. That's in verse 1. So, in light of what I've just said, verses 22 to 25 in particular, in light of verses 22 to 25, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. If we want to be healthy Christians, if we want to be a healthy church, we have to cut out all the things that might hinder our growth. We've got to cut out the bad stuff. Uh, just uh, The word actually means, the word cut out or put away here in the text actually means rid yourself of your soiled garments. That's what they would have understood in the Greek. Rid yourself of the soiled garments of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Set, set aside, shed Every attitude and every behavior that is inconsistent and incompatible with living a healthy Christian life. And these things actually are not arbitrary or random. These are sins that are informed by Peter's prior command in verse 22 to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So last week, if, we, if you were sat here and you can't remember, maybe you've got a question, well, how am I supposed to love how are we supposed to love each other earnestly from a pure heart? Well, here's Peter's examples. Cut out malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. They're not arbitrary. They are connected to the command to love. We're to shed the soiled garments of these kind of attitudes and actions that are the opposite of love. These things are the opposite of loving one another. And Peter wants us to recognize that if we don't put them off, if we don't cast them off, if we don't shed them and set them aside, if we tolerate them or indulge them, they're actually sins that will destroy the community and the harmony and the relationships within a church. That's why he's focusing on these particular sins, because they destroy relationships and harmony and community within the church. Let's look at what they are. So malice, he begins with malice. Malice is this, it's kind of a, a sort of a general reference to sin. Uh, and it's the idea behind it stands this idea of ill will and bad blood. That means you nurse grudges against other people, which then gives rise to this kind of intentional desire to see harm done to them. That we don't like them and so we want suffering to come to them in some way. There's, and we, we're looking at ways in which we could perhaps do that to them. That's what malice means. It's evil. Then there's these kind of other sins that are mentioned. And they kind of run in pairs. They're kind of running mates together. Two pairs that sort of tend to run together. Deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit is this kind of idea of 
deliberate deception of another person that will bring them harm through lying to them, through falsehood, through trickery, through uh, just you know, trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. And hypocrisy is that kind of inconsistency between our life and our practice, between what we say we believe and what we do. It's that kind of two-faced, pretending to be someone that we're not. Then there's envy and slander here. Envy is that kind of gnawing displeasure that we all feel when we see someone with something that we want, but we don't have. And we're kind of tormented by it, and it kind of makes us feel like, I hope something bad happens to them. Like, you know, you see someone driving a new car, and rather than celebrate with them, you go, I hope they drive out of the car park and someone whacks them in the back. Anybody ever think that? Come on. Just me? All right, just me. <laughs> That's why I drive around in a 10-year-old car, which has got scuff marks up the side, because then no one can be envious of my car. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it could be anything, couldn't it be? It could be possessions. It could be the wealth of someone else. It could be the relationships that someone else enjoys. You wish, oh, I wish they were my friends. Or it could be the lifestyle, the position, the status, the leadership role, the, the family that they have, whatever it might be. And we envy torments us, and it makes us unhappy, and we wish that unhappiness would visit the person who we envy as well. Then slander. Slander is a sin of the, uh, of the tongue. Uh, it's, it's often, actually, uh, and the reason it runs together with envy is because slander is often the public expression of that private inward sin of envy where we see something that someone else has or wants, and we, the best way of dealing with it is to bring them down, to disparage them, to malign them with words of self-righteous judgment or cruel words or criticisms or cynicism or skepticism towards them. So, uh, yeah, and it's slightly different from gossip, isn't it, slander? Because gossip, which also should be avoided, is this idea where we tell the truth, but we tell it to the wrong people. Whereas slander is, is the bold deliverance of lies to anybody who will listen. And Peter says here, we're to put off malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Because these are sins that rip at the fabric of churches. They, they rip at the very fabric of churches. They pull on the threads, the loose threads that bind us together. And if we pull on them too much, everything unravels. Or for another illustration, these sins are like cancer in the body of Jesus Christ. That if they're left unaddressed, if we don't go and get treatment for these sins, they'll actually grow and grow and become more malignant and more dangerous and actually end up killing us. So therefore, Peter says, healthy Christians in healthy churches must rid ourselves of these things. And three times he uses the word all. Did you notice this? So all malice, all deceit, and all slander. He's, he's telling us these are sins that can't just be tolerated. They must be completely rejected and cut out. And not just a one-time removal, but daily. Daily going after consistently, wherever and whenever these weeds pop up, we should be weeding them out. Wherever they, wherever they are popping up and we see slander or malice or deceit or envy or hypocrisy in our lives, we're supposed to root them out and cast them aside so that we can grow healthily. These sins are incompatible with the new birth. 
that we've been given in Christ. They're incompatible with the new life we've received through Jesus Christ. And if we tolerate them, if we indulge them, feed them, shelter them, pet them, actually, they will weaken our church. Potentially, they have the power to destroy churches. Think about the first audience that Pete was writing to. Here's a church that was facing the persecution of the world from the outside. They were facing threats of violence. They were facing persecution. They were facing uh, difficulties and opposition from the outside. And so Peter is trying to strengthen them against that. And one of the ways he wants to strengthen them is saying, don't bring the house down from the inside. Don't give the enemy a chance. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Don't help them destroy the church. That's what they want to do from the outside. Don't let them do it by helping from the inside. So cut those things out. And likewise, you and I, we need to put away these things. We need to put away these things so that we can love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because if we don't, the church, this church will weaken. It won't flourish or be fruitful. If we don't cut these things out, we won't grow up into maturity. We won't be healthy. We've got to cut out the bad stuff. Uh, Ray Ortland, who is a pastor and a commentator on this a particular passage. I loved what he said. He said, these sins that Peter talks about, they're the, they're the junk food of the Christian life. You know, they are easy to do. They're convenient. They're easy to get hold of. You can eat them down quickly. You can scoff and binge on them. And in the moment, just like McDonald's, it seems delicious. But when you've finished eating your McDonald's, what do you want next? You want another one. And another one, because the first one didn't quite satisfy. And he says, these sins, they can seem delicious in the moment, but they fill us with bad stuff. They fill us with trans fats and carbohydrates and sugars and cheese that doesn't satisfy us. It just kills our appetite for what is good. And it can leave us malnourished. If you just ate McDonald's every day, for a year, you would look unhealthy. And so Peter says, let's cut out the bad stuff. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Is there something on this list that we haven't completely put away? Some sin that Peter highlights here that we're sheltering or indulging or petting, believing that it's okay, believing that we're somehow justified in thinking or acting this way. We've got to ask ourselves some questions. Is there malice in my heart towards someone in the room? Is there something I've said or done that's deceived someone or shown hypocrisy where I'm trying to live one way or I'm living one way but trying to project a life of something else? Are we envious of someone in the room? And is that leading us to slander them? Because if we, are, if we don't put these soiled garments away, it can weaken our church. Perhaps you feel conviction this morning. I don't know. As you read God's word, it has the power to bring conviction to us. Uh, and sometimes when conviction comes, we can feel guilty, can't we? We can feel, oh, here he goes again, talking about sin. Wish he wouldn't do that. But we need to feel the conviction of God. His word is given to us. It's a good thing to help us to grow. Protect, uh, conviction protects us from the deceitfulness of sin. You know, 
It protects us from the deceitfulness of sin. It protects us from thinking that white is black and black is white. God is at work to help us to see things as he sees them. And conviction is a good thing. Conviction provokes us to seek repentance and forgiveness of sins from God and from the people that we've offended. And conviction pushes us to to flee from sin, which is what we're commanded to do in the Scriptures. I came across this in the week by Paul Tripp, and he says this, God never reveals our hearts to discourage us. Convicting us of sin is one of the most profound ways that God demonstrates his love for us. He's committed to completing his work in us. He will not allow us to live with hearts that are enslaved. He works in every situation so that we would know the freedom his death purchased for us. The conviction of our hearts is a sign that we are dearly loved children who have not only been forgiven of our sins, but are in the process of being delivered from them. So if you are here this morning and you hear Peter say, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and you think, actually, I haven't done that. And maybe the Spirit is speaking right into your hearts this morning. That's a good thing. Don't shake it off as condemnation. There's a difference. Conviction is pointing out sin so that we might repent and change. Condemnation is guilt without hope, isn't it? It says, ah, you're just bad and there's no hope for you. Conviction is a good thing. So let's respond to it. Where maybe there's a place where we need to repent. Maybe we need to seek the forgiveness of God and others where we've judged, spoken cruelly, slandered, been envious. Let's put these things aside, cut out the bad stuff so that we might grow up into health for the Christian. On the other hand, <clears throat> let me just say this as well. I was thinking about this in the week. You know, sometimes we go through seasons where we don't feel like we're growing. Anybody feel like that sometimes? Sometimes we go through seasons where we don't feel like we're growing, where our Christian life is a little bit barren, and we feel like, am I really a Christian? Is this really making any difference? You know, am I any different to how I was last year? Well, taking the logic of Peter's argument here in chapter 2, there's the very real possibility that we don't grow because we don't cut out the bad stuff. All right? There's a very real possibility that if we allow these sins to fester, if we've allowed them to be watered and fed, they grow up and they choke the good gospel seed. They choke out the things that we do want to grow. And so we just got to look at ourselves. Is there, if we feel like we're a bit barren and we haven't grown very much and we're a bit stale, let's look at the possibility that maybe we've allowed these weeds to grow up and choke out the good stuff. And if they have, well, the process is the same. Let's confess and repent and seek God's forgiveness. The good news of the gospel that Peter celebrated in the previous chapter is that Christ has liberated us from these sins. He's paid the penalty for these sins. He's broken the power of these sins. And so therefore, we can cast them off. We can put aside the soiled garments of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander because Christ has paid for them. He's died for them. He offers the forgiveness for them. He empowers us to confront them so we can go to him 
and find the help that we need. We can find the forgiveness that we need. We can find the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we need to forsake these sins. So let's not leave here in condemnation without hope. Let's leave here, if we're convicted, with hope that God is at work right now in our hearts, causing us to grow. So let's receive his loving kindness this morning. We, you know, we can go after our sin because of the gospel. We don't have to be embarrassed by our sin because of the gospel. Because Christ has paid for it. But the command of the scriptures is, go after it and kill it before it gets us. You know, John Owen used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Peter here is telling us the same thing. Go after these things, because if we don't, we won't grow up into salvation. And let's remember the words of Richard Sibbs, who was a wonderful English Puritan. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. So we're free to confront it because we will never find that there is not grace for it. We will always find there is an abundance of grace. I love what, uh, is it David in Psalm 130 says, with you there is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. So let's be ruthless and be relentless and root out this cancer and cut out the bad stuff because there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And because we want to grow to be like Christ, so we need to cut, the, cut out the bad stuff. We've got to take this command seriously. If we don't, we shouldn't be surprised if we don't grow. If we don't take this command seriously, we shouldn't be surprised if our church doesn't flourish as God purposes and intends. But we mustn't, also, we mustn't just exclusively focus on what we should cut out. Peter also wants us to focus on something that we should put on or crave. So that takes us to our second point this morning. Crave the good stuff. We're to cut out the bad stuff and crave the good stuff. Just like uh, healthy eating is about cutting out the bad stuff and the bad fats and the bad sugars, we are also to eat vegetables and fruit in abundance. We are supposed to eat good stuff. We're to crave the good stuff. And in verse 2, Peter tells us the good stuff that we are to crave. But perhaps surprisingly... Rather than a list of virtues that correspond to these vices that are the countermeasures to be embraced and to be put on, which is what Paul does in other places like Colossians and Ephesians and so forth, put this off and put this on, Peter just gives us one single command. Look with me at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Well, what is that? Well, in the context of the verse, that is the word that was preached to you. That is, back further up into verse 32, the living and abiding imperishable word of God. That is the pure spiritual milk that we are to long for. We are to long for God's word. The same word that brought new life to us is the same word that will sustain us and provide the sustenance we need throughout our time of exile that will cause us to grow into the salvation that is awaiting us on the day of Jesus 
Christ. That's Peter's logic here. Okay, The word has given you life. The word was preached to you. That same word is going to sustain your life while you remain exiles on this earth waiting for heaven. The same word that initiates new life is the same word that will sustain you and will cause you to grow. So long for it. Long for it. That, that long for the pure spiritual milk is the central command of these verses. Long for it. Crave it. Desire it with the greatest of intensities. And then in case you don't know what that looks like, he gives us an illustration. Love this illustration. He says, be like a baby. What do babies do? All right? We've got a bunch of babies. We, you know... Some of us are mothers in the room and fathers. We've, we've had babies live in our house. Some of us have served on the creche with babies. What do babies do when they're hungry? They scream, don't they? They wail. They go absolutely bonkers. They, and nobody has to tell them to do it. You don't, you know, it's not like the baby comes out in the, of the womb in the, in the delivery room and the midwife says, let me just have a few moments uh, with, uh, with Jack or Ben uh, to explain how they should respond now. Uh, and they, they don't take them in their arms and they don't say, listen, right, what you need to do is when you are hungry, you need to cry. They know it instantly. They come out of the womb crying and they cry incessantly and they cry eagerly and they cry instinctively and they cry passionately and they cry loudly and they cry unrelentingly until they get the milk that they want that is going to satisfy them. And once they get that milk, they're happy for about half an hour <laughs> or an hour or three hours. And then they're doing it again and again and again and again. And you, if you live in a house with a baby, you go from a full head of hair to this as they scream, especially if you've got three of them doing it all at once, all right? Babies scream for their milk. They crave it. They want it. They won't let anything get in the way of it. They don't care whether you're asleep. They don't care what time of the day it is. They don't care whether you're in church or in the park. They don't care if you're in the car. They want it now. And Peter says, that's how we should be when it comes to God's word. Babies crave the milk because they know that the milk is going to nourish them and feed them and give them life. And what happens when a baby drinks the milk consistently and is well fed? What happens to babies? They grow up into teenagers and then into adults. They mature. They get bigger. They put on weight. They grow up. And Peter says that's what we should be like as Christians. We should be craving instinctively and eagerly and incessantly and passionately and loudly and unrelentingly hour after hour. When we've got a fix, we need another bit for God's word because we know that God's word is the milk we need to nourish us, to feed us, to give us life. And if we drink it down deeply and consistently and if we digest it, we will put on weight and grow up into the salvation that he desires for us. You see, for a baby... Milk is not an optional extra. It's not a fringe benefit. It is central to their life and health. And Peter says the same for God's word for us. Christians should be addicted to the Bible. 
we should be Bible-holics. All right? That's the command to all Christians. So when Peter says they're like, we should be like newborn babies, he's not making any statement about the level of maturity of these Christians. He's not calling them newborn infants like they're somehow immature in their faith. No, he's saying all Christians should desire God's word like babies long for milk. That's the simple point he's making. It's just an illustration. We should desire God's word because it is only through God's word that we will grow to be the people that he wants us to be. You know, growth doesn't happen magically. Growth doesn't happen mystically. Growth doesn't even happen instantaneously. Okay? Growth, the, growth happens through God's word. There is a false dichotomy if you think that there is the Bible over here and somehow kind of knowing and, and developing your relationship with God over here. No, you cannot, we cannot detach the word from God and you can't pursue God without the word. Peter tells us if you want to grow up into the salvation that is ours, one for us in Jesus Christ, which is the joy of being with him forever, we've got to do it through God's word. We've got to prepare ourselves and grow up into it through God's word. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 about how the church grows up and is equipped in faith uh, for every good work of service, what does he describe? How does he describe the mechanism for how that happens? How does the church grow into Christ? Through the Word. It's the Word and the ministry of the Word that does it. Okay? It's the Word that does it. As we read the Word, we're brought closer to Jesus. And as we long to know more of Jesus, it should drive us to the place where He's most clearly revealed. In his word. We should find ourselves increasingly immersed in the living and abiding word of God that was preached to us. Growth is informed and sustained by God's word as we read it and as we hear it preached and as we memorize it and as we study it and as we meditate on it and as we discuss it and as we pray it through. It's the word that makes us grow. It's the word that is the pure spiritual milk that we need. Nobody drifts towards growth. Nobody drifts towards godliness. It requires effort and intentionality. It requires a craving, a desire, a wanting it. So we've got to have a plan and a strategy for how we will take it in, how we will... So, <clears throat> you know, when you feed a baby, there's all sorts of ideas that go around, whether you, you know, the baby tells you when it's hungry and you just feed it all the time, or whether you get it on a two-hour schedule or a three-hour schedule or a four-hour schedule. Who cares what that, you know, you just got to feed your baby. Got to feed your baby. Got to have a plan. Got to know, I got to feed my baby. So if you go outside, you got to have bottles and powder and water and stuff, or the right clothes on. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a strategy. It's the same when it comes to God's word. What are we going to do to help us avail uh, ourselves of all the help that we can to make sure that we're well fed? Uh, how are we going to read our Bibles? What's our reading program? What's it, how are we going to hold ourselves accountable? How is other people going to hold ourselves accountable? Are we going to talk, do it in a group or one to, ones and twos? Are we, how are we going to do it? Have a plan. Have a strategy. What, tell someone about it. I'm going to read the New Testament this week. And then the Old Testament next week. I'm going to do Isaiah this week. And then I'm going to do, uh, you know, 
Matthew next week. Have a plan. Get a Bible reading plan. Think about 2019 now. What could we plan now to do in 2019? Wouldn't it be if you've never read through the Bible completely in one go? Uh, not in one go, that would take you for hours and hours, but if you've never read from the, through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, make 2019 the year that you do that. Get a Bible reading plan. The best one I know, I think it's called the, the Discipleship Journal Reading Plan that John, you can find on John Piper's website. It's brilliant. It's like four chapters a day, or f- you know, uh, every day of the year, but it gives you five days <coughs> off a month for laziness. All right, it's brilliant. It's fantastic if you can't, you know, five days off for laziness and and other things that crop up. But it's doable. But we've got to get a plan to get God's word into us. Listen to Matt's seminar from the conference that we did a couple of weeks ago. And he talked about private worship and about how you take in God's word and how you pray it back to him. Because if we don't have a plan, we will neglect the word. And if we neglect the word, we will be malnourished. And if we are malnourished, we won't grow. If we don't grow, we don't glorify God. We're unhealthy. So run a diagnostics test on your heart this morning. Are you a big baby? Ask yourself the question, when it comes to God's word, are you a big baby? Because we should be. We should desire God's word. Make sure that that longing translates into doing And if we humbly acknowledge, having done the test, that I'm a big baby, but not in the right way, uh, well, Peter's not finished. He's got good news for us. And this leads us to our third tip about how we can quicken this desire. This is verse 3. He says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, the if here is not intended to bring doubt into the reader's mind. If you've, if, not sure. No, it probably would be better translated since. Since you've tasted that the Lord is good. Long for the pure spiritual milk. So let me, let me just kind of turn it on its head a little bit. So Peter says, long for it since you've already tasted it. And if you don't long for it, remember what it tasted like so that it creates fresh appetite and longing for it again. A little bit like, I was at the mall last Monday. We went out shopping on my day off. We did some Christmas shopping. We are in the mall. Claire's in boots, buying gifts. I was outside of boots at the cheese and chutney free samples counter. I'll have you know. All right? Brilliant. I stood there with the kids. The woman behind the counter, bless her. She was like, would you like to try some? And I was like, yes, I would. And so would they. And so there was a big crowd because there was all of us. And we were trying little bits of cheddar with chilies and caramelized onions in it. And then she had like 20 different chili sauces that you dipped a, like a little wooden thing in and you licked them from, uh, from blow your head off to you'll never be able to speak again. It was so hot temperatures, which we all went for. And then there was around the other side of the table, which he only discovered late latterly, there was chutneys and stuff and uh, all sorts of wonderful like, and recipe cards and stuff. So we were like eating these things, trying these things. And then 
you know, why are they there? She's not there just to, you know, provide my children with a free dinner. <laughs> She's there to try and, the samples are to give you an appetite for more. And so in the end, because I felt bad, <laughs> we bought two jars of ju- chutney, which was the most expensive chutney I have ever bought, to which I said to Claire, we are keeping this for Christmas. This is not everyday use chutney, have you know? Um, so we bought these chutneys because the samples made us long for more. It wasn't sufficient just to get this amount of cheese on a cocktail stick. It wasn't sufficient to get just a little dip of the chili sauce. I wanted more. So we bought jars, two jars of the chutney. And that's what Peter is getting at here. If you've got no longing, if you've got no appetite, remember when you first tasted the goodness and kindness of God. Go back to your conversion. Go back to the place where you experienced the grace of God and remember what it was like to know that your sins were forgiven, to know that your your past was covered by the blood of Jesus. Go to those places in the scriptures that you know that that speak to you of the deliverance of God. And remind yourself of the taste. Remind yourself of the flavor. Remind yourself of what it was like and savor it so that it creates an appetite in your heart for more. In fact, this, this uh, verse 3 is, a, is a, an allusion to, to Psalm uh, 34 where David is rejoicing because he's experienced God's deliverance from the hands of Abimelech. And in the midst of the trials that he was facing and in the midst of the sufferings, David is able to rejoice in the goodness and the kindness of God. And he invites everybody to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so Peter here is saying the same thing. If you've tasted, since you, I know that you have tasted of the goodness and kindness of God. If you can't, if you don't have an appetite for it now, go and cultivate an appetite for more by remembering the tastes remembering what it was like, and let God be Moorish to you as you remember his goodness and his kindness in delivering you from the enemies of sin and hell and Satan and death. Taste and see that the Lord is good again. Go back, review your own personal testimony. Go back to those places in Scripture that speak of the beauty and the grace and the kindness of God and marinate yourself in them so that they whet fresh appetite and longing for the pure spiritual milk. And we've all, if we're Christians, got places we can go that we can revisit and review to reawaken our taste buds. And then when we've reawakened our taste buds, Get out your word and drink. Get out your copy of God's word and drink with anticipation of meeting him, with anticipation of meeting him in, meeting him in all of his indescribable goodness and mercy and kindness and generosity. See, the Bible isn't given to us just to discern doctrine. It's not given to us just simply to, um, to help us discover biblical principles by which we can live by. The Bible is a covenantal book. It's given to us so that we might encounter God through it, so that we might experience and deepen an ever-deepening relationship with a God who is very, very good to us.
That's why Peter wants us to long for it, because through it, by drinking it, we will be healthy because we get more of God in us. And as we read his words, his words will become sweeter than honey, more desirable than gold, because in them we find God himself, the greatest treasure. So let's thank God for his commitment to see us. He wants to see us healthy. He tells us to cut out the bad stuff, crave the good stuff, cultivate a healthy attitude and appetite. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the goodness of your words that tells us what we need to be healthy Christians and a healthy church. Lord, I pray for every one of us in the room, would you make your goodness so real to us that we just want more and more and more of you? Would you give us a greater and greater longing for the pure spiritual milk that we so desperately need? And would you help us where is appropriate? For we all face different temptations and challenges. Would you help us to put off all the bad stuff that, we, that so easily entangles? Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And help us to long for you in your word so that we might grow up to be healthy mature, Christ-like people, ready for the salvation that is ours when Jesus returns. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen. Amen.